All right. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to jump in and get started. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would lead and guide our time today. We are humbled by truths that we are going to examine today. We pray that that would be true. We pray that we would all the more so be humbled by the goodness of the exclusivity of, of salvation through Jesus Christ. And that you in your great grace and mercy have given that to us and given us the responsibility to share that uh, to the ends of the earth. We pray that we would be spurred on towards love and good deeds by our conversation today and that you be glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. All right, hopefully you guys grabbed one of these on the way in. Super helpful. So uh, the last couple weeks, this is week four of our Intro to Missions class. And so just as a quick recap, in week one, we, uh, we talked about the foundation for missions. Um, looked at definitions, talked about, we discussed the, kind of the goal of missions. And we said then that... Uh, Evangelism, missions is evangelism that takes the gospel across across ethnic, linguistic, and geographic boundaries, sees disciples made, and then gathered into churches. So we're trying to make a distinction within missions to be really clear about what 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 qualifies as missions, what we should be pursuing in missions, and then on the flip side, what what's good, faithful. Christian ministry, things that should be, uh, that can be done, but that aren't missions, and we want to, uh, not, not to confuse the two, so, um, C.S. Lewis, in, uh, I think it's in Mere Christianity, gives the example of, uh, when you start using a term to, to, to refer to anything, then it loses its power to describe what it really is, so he uses the example of the word gentleman, gentleman used to refer to a specific uh, class of man who had specific uh, qualities and specific roles and uh, then we just started using it to describe any male and then it lost all of its value as a word. He uses that to describe how Christianity we use the word Christian all the time for some reasons. I think we can use the same with missions. If everything is missions then nothing is missions. Um, but in particular I want you to know okay, what is missions and then that affects why and how we do it. So it's evangelism that takes the gospel across ethnic, linguistic, and geographic boundaries, sees disciples made, so it doesn't just stop with evangelism, but it sees disciples made, and then for those to be healthy, growing disciples, and for us to teach them all that Christ has um, commanded, we gather them into churches. So uh, in effect, we're saying that it's glorifying God by making disciples of all nations, and gathering them into churches so that they can glorify God and make disciples of all nations and gather them into churches so that those can glorify God by making disciples of all nations and gathering them into churches. And praise God, that's been the pattern by God's grace and sovereignty um, throughout Christian history. And then the next two weeks, we looked at, okay, well, well then, what is the biblical basis for missions? And what we found was that God's heart and plan for the nations um, isn't, doesn't just hang on a handful of New Testament uh, texts that people who are really adventurous or like other cultures have, have fixated on. Instead, we find that God's heart and plan for the nations uh, is from cover to cover of the Bible. So we spent a week looking at just the texts, 
just highlighted some texts that we see in the Old Testament, but didn't get a, even to look at all of them. And the same with the New Testament in week three. So what I want us to do today is I want us to start to ask some um, hard but important questions about missions that, or about, uh, yeah, about the world and how, how God created it, how it works in such a way that will affect missions, not only the why, but the how. So the big question I want us to ask today is, is Jesus the only way to God? Is Jesus the only way to God? So I want to hear from you guys. How would missions, how is missions affected if Jesus Christ isn't the only way to God? If Jesus Christ isn't the only way to God, what happens to missions? Okay, loses its urgency. How does it lose its urgency? Right. Right. What else? What else happens to it? There are other ways to God besides Jesus Christ. Repenting and believing in Jesus Christ. What happens to missions? How does it lose the whole purpose? Yeah, if other people in other places can find other ways to get to God, then why take them our message? Yeah. yeah so it's not urgent. It may be not even necessary. Yeah, totally, totally. Again, to quote another C.S. Lewis quote, well, we might only one today, but in uh, in Surprised by Joy, he talks about, uh, he, he makes an argument that in, in his own life, uh, the eternal his eternal state wasn't brought into his thoughts about um, conversion until much later, and he thinks it's a huge benefit. He thinks as soon as we bring etern- eternity in, it becomes transactional. Well, I want God because I want eternity, eternal life. And he's, he's been arguing, like, no, 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 we should want God because he's God. Like, because he, he's a creator of all things, because he's the most glorious, because he is, he is demanded it of us, and he's worthy of that. Uh, and bonus, we also get to spend eternity with him. And I, I also think another way that this changes is, it goes back to what we started with the conversation about, hey, what is missions and what isn't missions? And if if the message of the gospel 
isn't urgent, isn't necessary, isn't critical, because it's not exclusive, then we again broaden everything else can become missions. So we can spend all of our time uh, helping people in across ethnic, linguistic, and geographic boundaries, but not evangelizing, making disciples, and gathering them into churches, because that that doesn't that doesn't matter. So the the Christian claim that no one can get to God apart from Christ is critical to understanding missions. And what I want us to do today is examine uh, what the Bible says about this doctrine. And I want us to discuss some of its intricacies. And as best as we can in the time that we have, I want us to try to understand um, how this affects how we do missions. So the simplest translation of the word gospel that we use all the time is just good news. The gospel is good news. So when we say the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're literally saying the good news of Jesus Christ. And so there's lots of different ways we can kind of we can zoom in and see the different components of the gospel. We might talk about the the holiness of God and his power as creator and that we are made in his image, but we are we have rebelled and run from him and he has us because of that we are separated from him eternally unless he saves us and sends his son to be our redeemer and he has done that Christ lived a perfect life he died a death that we deserve he rose from the grave and now he uh, he calls us to repent and believe in him there's lots of ways we can talk about those different components well, one of the ways I want us to look at it today is in three parts I want us to talk about the bad news of the good news the good news of the good news and the exclusive news of the good news, all right? So the bad news, the good news, and the exclusive news. And then we'll talk about how that relates to missions. So first, let's talk about the bad news. And the bad news is, is that we are all under judgment. Now I'm going to hand out some, some uh, passages, and we'll just kind of work our way around this way. So, Michael, would you read... Uh, Psalm 51, verses 3 through 6. And then Ruby, would you, no, okay, Ruby. Ruby, can you do Isaiah 53, 6? No. You got that one memorized, I'm sure. All right, let's keep going. You do Isaiah 53, uh, verse 6. And then we're all going to turn to Romans 3 here in just a second. So, but, Michael, what? Where do we, right, so read Psalm 53, Psalm 51, 3 through 6. So, uh, who remembers the context of Psalm 51? Yep, so David's writing after Bathsheba. Remind us how that story goes down briefly. We've got a list of people David has sinned against. He 
sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against, uh, you could say, he sinned against the country that he's leading, right? Um, and those aren't gone, but superseded by them is that David realizes that he sinned against God. And we see here, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So he's not negating the fact that he has sinned against humanity, but the level to which he has sinned against God um, supersedes it. And so you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He recognizes that God will judge us for the, the ways in which we live in this world. But uh, it's not only that David is the one who's in trouble. Um, we all fall, can recognize this in our own life. But it's not just that you can think of what well, examples of that. Actually, the Bible tells us this is a universal problem. And we see this in places like Isaiah 53. Hmm. Yeah, and you just hear the the um, the all language in there, right? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. This this is a universal problem. And Paul's going to pick this up in Romans chapter 3. So let's everyone turn to Romans chapter 3. And in uh, starting in verse 9, Paul's going to do some of this work for us, and he's going to pull a lot of Old Testament texts together and, uh, uh, and uh, help us to see that the Bible in lots of different places talks about how we are all sinners and all under judgment. And so, you feel comfortable reading a big chunk? Great. Can you read down th not, uh, chapter 3, 9 through 18? So again, Paul is pulling together verses from the Psalms and the Prophets to describe uh, our state. And he's not pinning it on the, the ambiguous they out there in the world. Like, you know, they, they say, right? It's them. It's some other people we don't know about. No, no, no. He's included everybody, and we see that up in verse 9. For we, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, so he's divided the world into two groups, Jews and non-Jews, and he said all, everybody that falls into either of those two groups fit this description. They are under sin. And then, we'll keep going. Can you read verses 19, 19 just 19 and 20? Chapter 3, 19 and 20. Would you do it? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. Yep. 
So we've got, again, more all-inclusive language here. Um, every mouth will be stopped. The whole world will be held accountable. No human being will be justified in his sight. Okay, so this is a pretty extensive claim to the bad news of the gospel. How does recognizing that everyone is under this judgment affect how we think about missions? It's not just you. It's not just folks near you. Everyone is under this. How does that affect how we think about missions? thoughts on how this part of the bad news of the good news affects missions. Yeah, well said. We're not like, hmm, I can't I can't quite tell if that person right there, do they need the gospel? Yeah, because we know the bad news for them. Yeah, for sure. Well, and it's not just that we've all sinned and then we will all face judgment, but that judgment is eternal. So keep your finger in Romans 3 because we're going to come back there in just a minute. But let's flip over to Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, Jesus is talking and he's going to describe what's going to happen when he comes back in his glory. And so in Psalm in Matthew 25 starting in verse 31 I'll read When the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations. All right? So this is a this is in line with the verses that we looked at last week, right? All the nations everyone will stand before his judgment throne and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, so this is his sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I will, I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. 
I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me naked, and you did not clothe me sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison, and we did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, there's lots in this passage for us to unpack about missions, and we will tackle some of the hows that this passage helps us understand in another class. But what I want us to see here is when Jesus talks about the consequences of the bad news and the good news of the gospel, they are eternal. This is not, um, it's passages like this help us understand that we don't have a, well, uh, when we die, that's it. We cease to exist. Um, or uh, you, you, uh, you are punished for a certain amount of time, and then at the end of that punishment, you fulfilled it, and uh, you're, you're leveled up into, into heaven after that. Or you, uh, at the end of that time, uh, you've, you finished all your punishment, and you, you're extinguished. You're annihilated. Um, those all have appeal to us on a human level, but they don't have um, biblical standing, particularly with a passage as clear as this one, that, no, the consequences for our sin and the beautiful consequences of God's grace and, uh, given to us in faith, both of those consequences are eternal. They're eternal. And so uh, when we think about the eternal nature of uh, the, the, the bad news of the good news, how does this affect why and how we do missions? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It should, it should give us urgency for sure. beautiful reality of the gospel is that uh, if in Christ, if you are in Christ, then this life is as close to hell as you'll ever get. And instead, you'll spend eternity with him in heaven. So the worst things that this life can throw at us is as close to hell as you'll ever get. It's the worst. Um, but So brave them. Take them on right, with great urgency because we know that there is an eternity uh, with God waiting for us. But the reality is, is that for those who are not in Christ, everything in this fleeting life is as close to heaven as they'll get. The best things that this life could offer to them are mere shadows of what they could have in Christ for eternity. But instead, they'll spend forever in hell, separated from the loving, steadfast love of, of God. 
and under his wrath for all eternity. This should give great urgency, should prompt us to be um, yeah, willing to give up much, to persevere much. All this, these are the part, these definitely affect how we think about how missions. So we thought about the bad news of the good news. Let's talk about the good news of the good news. Let's turn back to Romans chapter 3. And let's look at, start in verse, we'll pick up where we left off in verse 21. Who's up? You read? Yep, okay. Um, Uh, 20, I'm sorry, I didn't say. Through 25. Yep. God. Isn't that good? I remember, distinctly remember um, uh, David Platt reading this passage one time and getting to verse 23 and reading, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And everyone in the room could quote it. And then he said, And 24? And no, no one knew what it was. And he said, it's good for us to memorize the bad news of the gospel, but we also need to memorize the good news of the gospel. And here, for all have sinned, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, and, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, so a, an atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. So this is the this is the good news of the good news that um, God saves sinners. With all the bad news that we just talked about, that all of us are under judgment and that judgment is eternal. Here is the the good news that the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Um, and not only that that God saves sinners. But God saves all kinds of sinners. He actually saves every kind of sinner. Um, and so what I mean by that is that, like, that's part of the promise that we've looked at last week, that every tribe, tongue, nation, and people will be saved, will be around the throne, will be worshiping God forever. And so we, we saw that a lot in the passages we looked at last week, but let's look at two again. Look, someone, uh, let's keep going. Um, would someone read Romans five seventeen, right here? And would you, Desi? Would you read First Corinthians fifteen, twenty one? Who has Romans five seventeen? Oh, he's got it. He's pulling it up.
here, death again reigns, but God's grace is abundant. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 21. So here we have, um, yeah, on one end, Adam brings death, and then all of us follow in that train of death. And then the new Adam comes in Christ, and all who believe follow in that train of life in Christ. And as we've seen in, in the passage we looked at last week, and we're going to look at it here again in a second, this extends to every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. exclusivity of the doctrine of Christ is not to a particular people, to a particular language, to a particular tribe, to a particular background. It is to only those who have faith. But to those who have faith, it can be any, any people uh, to the ends of the earth. So, so we need to look at what is the nature of this exclusive news of the gospel. Um, so the Christian claim to exclusivity says that only those who turn from their sins and trust in Christ as their substitute will be saved. That Christianity is objectively right and others are objectively wrong in their conception of saving truth. It says that people will not reach God through other religions or by being good, but only through faith in Christ. Right, so if we're trying to kind of pin down what is... What is this doctrine? It's that Christianity is the, has, is the only religion, the only philosophy, the only worldview that has the right answer. And every other path only leads to death. And that is in our pluralistic, in our compassionate uh, mindset, worldview, that is uh, that just kind of grates against us, and and I'll just say that like that is always grated. Like that's not something that's unique to modern thought and modern sensibilities. And well, that that grates on us because we're Americans. It does grate on us because we're Americans in 2022. But it would have grated on us as Americans in 1801, and it would have grated on us as Mesopotamians in 20 in year 22, right? Like it. The, ex- the exclusive claims of Christ have, have always graded against every time uh, culture and people. Um, so we shouldn't reject them because of that. We need to examine them um, even in light of that. So Christian, Christians are quick to run to John 14, verse 6. You find that one? And then let's also look at Revelation chapter 5, okay? And Acts 4, verse 12. We're just going to we're going to way around the circle. Fourteen six. Yeah. What what it what of this is the exclusive claim? Where do we see the exclusive claim in John fourteen six? The word the. Yep. Yep. And then how else? Yep. Yep. Yeah, when I was in college, I had a buddy who was going to a, a, a Christian 
a college of occults of Christian that didn't really believe that, uh, much in the Bible and didn't believe in the exclusive claim of Christ and had taught him that, well, in the Greek, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no definitive article. Can't find it. And, and at first that seemed persuasive to me. Like, oh, we're talking about the Greek, right? One, that shows a bad reading of Greek. Uh, and two, it completely negates the second half of the sentence, of the, of the verse. So he, his whole argument was built on, well, Jesus is just saying, I am way, I am truth, I am life. And, and then, well, he keeps going though, right? No one comes to the Father except through me. Christ is uniquely qualified to save because he, being God, lived a perfect life and died on the cross, shedding his blood as a ransom for the sins of those who would trust in him and would repent of their sins. And then he proved that he was qualified to do that, that he really was the way, the truth, the life, right? Because he completely fulfilled the just requirements of God by rising from the dead. And for this reason, he's the only one worthy to save us. He's the only one worthy to be that exclusive propitiation we looked at, that exclusive atoning sacrifice for our sin. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not any other religious leader, not ourselves, not collectively our own strength as a people. None of those things stack up. So let's look at uh, Revelation chapter 5, and would you just pick up in verse 9? So here we have John, he's seen this vision of what is to come, and he looks up, uh, and he, uh, back in uh, verse 2, uh, it says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and to look into it. So here's, here's the bad news of the gospel here pictured. In every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, no one is worthy. No one is worthy. No one can be found. On the earth, under the earth, in the sea, doesn't matter. No creature is found worthy except for what was just read for us, except for Christ. Only the Lamb is worthy. And see how often they talk about he is worthy. Worthy are you in verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. And then in verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Praise God. So 
that's um, so this is why we sing that song by um, uh, Adrian Peterson the, the is he worthy song this comes right out of this passage right I think the lyrics go is anyone worthy is anyone whole is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll the lion of Judah who conquered the grave he is David's root and the lamb who died to ransom the slave from every people and tribe every nation and tongue he has made us a kingdom and priest to God to reign with the son is he worthy is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory is he worthy is he worthy is he worthy of this he is he is amen amen part of how we how the word of Christ dwells richly in us is that we sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to one another um, Colossians 3 tells us that that's one of the ways we do it and this, this is a great song that helps us remember this glorious truth that only Jesus is worthy to be that propitiation for our sins that, that um, atoning sacrifice for our sins Acts 4, verse 12, what does it tell us? So this is Peter's exhortation to the authorities um, who have detained uh, him and, and John in Jerusalem um, as they preach the gospel. And notice the broad implications. He's speaking to these people individually but he understands and is articulating the global effect of the salvation of Christ there is no other name under heaven among men listen to those qualifying no other name under all of heaven among all of men by which we may be saved so now I want us to ask uh, a, a more nuanced question in this and that is a skeptic might say, okay, I get this claim, and I think it might be true, but is Christ really the only way to become right with God? And do people actually need a conscious faith in Christ to be saved? Do we actually have to know that we're trusting in Christ to save us, or is Christ able to save us in some other way? So there's a, a quote from C.S. Lewis. Uh, and C.S. Lewis is kind of ambiguous on this, confusing at times on exactly how he took this. But here's, this is what he said. He said, we know that no man can be saved except through Christ. We do not know that only those who know him can be saved through him. All right. Yep. C.S. Lewis said, we know that no man can be saved except through Christ. So C.S. Lewis is going to, at this point, where he is in his wrestling and in his, with this doctrine and in his teaching, he's going to say, all right, I'm, I'm tracking with you all the way to this point. Jesus is the only one worthy. No, We know that no man can be saved except through Christ. We do not know that only those who know him can be saved through him. Okay, so C.S. Lewis is saying in this moment, all right, but is there a way for Jesus' blood to be applied to sinners who need his blood to be applied to their life 
if they've never heard of it? Is that possible? So, it's a good question. I'm glad, I'm glad Clive Stables, Jack, brought it up for us. Okay? Um, so let's see, let's see what the Bible tells us about this. We're going to look at a couple different places. Um, Gaddy, would you jump for us? Would you look, would you start for us in 10.8? Yep. Okay, so uh, as, as you're pulling that up, so end of chapter 9, beginning of 10, Paul is making the point that faith in Christ has come to stand in the place of faith in God that was required in the Old Testament. So we're, we're narrowing the specific understanding um, through the revelation of Scripture, progressive revelation of Scripture. So Christ is the goal of the Old Testament message, and all faith must now be focused on him specifically for salvation. And the result is that only by faith in Jesus can a man be saved. So this is what we read. Start in verse 8 for us and read, read down through 17. And on occasion I may just stop you and comment on something. So, where in this passage do we see answers to the question of can you be saved by Christ without knowing Christ? Okay, what do 13 and 14 say? Read it again for us and then tell us how it fits. So then, how does, how does that verse help us understand or answer the question, can you be saved without knowing Jesus? Mm-hmm. Yep. Good. Good. What else? Where else do we see in this passage answers to the question of, can you be saved by Christ without knowing Christ? Yeah. 
there seems to be some uh, things that are happening in this lifetime that are that are implied in here. And I think there's some notes you could debate on that, but I think that's part of it. Confess with your mouth. That's something that we do now, bodily. Somehow. Um, you believe in your heart. That's eternal things. Yep. yep. What else? So how does that help us know? Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, Paul there is picking up on some of the distinctions of when we preach the gospel, we're going to preach to everyone who needs it, but not everyone's going to believe it. Um, and the Bible tells us that's going to happen. Um, tells, Jesus tells us that in the parable of the soils. Um, yeah, in the way Paul's understanding what Isaiah is saying there, that, yeah, who, who believes? Um, some, some will believe. And that's, that's the pattern that we see here. Not all will. So then, um, according to what's the pat- what's the pattern? Who will be saved? Those who call on him. But who will call on him? Well, those who have faith in Christ. But who will have faith? Those who hear will have faith. And who will hear? Those who are preached the gospel by somebody. I'm telling them that the gospel is a precondition for hearing. So this rules out people meeting Christ apart from being confronted with or told the gospel. Um, so this means that there needs to be a messenger. I think primarily that messenger are people. Now in God's grace, he often uses things like books written by people, tracts, things like that, where someone uh, hears the good news and reads uh, truths of the scripture but primarily, this is done because people are sent, right, from our passage. And how, will, um, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So um, we'll, we'll hang out on that verse a lot over the course of the coming weeks, particularly the role of the church to send. So what we're trying to see here from this passage is that uh, calling on the Lord in a saving way is not something we can do out of a position of ignorance. Um, we cannot do this worshiping some other proclaimed deity or following some other religion. We can't do this just in our own um, sincerity, things like that. Um, no, we, we have to know the specific uh, claims of the gospel and respond to the specific claims of Christ. Now, People are going to push back on this, and so I want us to give us, so let's look at some case studies to help us understand this. And one in particular that you might hear often is the man on the island. Anyone ever heard of the, the man on the island argument and want to kind of articulate that position? Yes, they say they 
Yeah, so what do we do with the, the poor innocent guy on the other side of the globe who's no access to the gospel and dies? Is God going to judge him? What's wrong with the argument? He's not innocent. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the fundamental question of that is, is he, he's not innocent before God. He's not an innocent man on, on an island with no access. People are not punished merely for being mistaken, right? You just picked the wrong option, right? Or um, for failing to recognize uh, Jesus as God's son, what they're punished for is for their sin, for their rebellion against God, very specifically. We are all under judgment for that, and that stands until we trust in Jesus Christ to be the payment step in as our substitutionary atonement. Let's look at some Bible examples. Okay? We don't have a ton of time to dip into these uh, in great detail, but one of the I think is super helpful for me is the story of Cornelius. Uh, and it's in Acts chapters 10 and 11. Um, and uh, so uh, Cornelius is a God-fearer. Um, he's described as uh, he and his whole family were devout and God-fearing he gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. All right, so we have this description of this guy who's making his best efforts according to all that he's known to this point to fear God and to follow him, uh, to care, to love God and love others, okay? So what does God do with Cornelius? Does he say, that's enough? It's enough that he's, do, he's sincere. It's enough that he's making the best efforts that he can. Um, it's enough that he's, he's caring for others. Right? Nope, he's, he's not going to leave him uh, in that state. Instead, he's going to send Peter to preach the gospel to him. He's actually going to go to great lengths to send Peter to preach the gospel to him. He's going to overcome big hurdles to send Peter to preach the gospel to him. Um, and uh, Peter's going to say, I now realize, uh, in verse 34, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. right. So this is not describing what he was in his pre-conversion state. That's not, oh, God accepts everyone who, who fears and, and does good deeds. What he's talking about here is those who have trusted in Christ. And we know that because we, as we keep reading down um, in, ver, in chapter 11, verse 14, he says... Uh, He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your household. So the Holy Spirit tells Cornelius, hey, send these messengers to go find Peter. And when he comes, he's going to give you a message by which you will be saved, you and your whole household. Everyone will have access to this, but you don't have it now. You need to go find this guy who will bring that message to you. Right? The text clearly conveys that before Peter's message arrived, they were not saved. As good and as devout as they were, they were not saved. Indeed, uh, if anything, this story seems to show what great lengths God will go to include people in his great salvation plan. He orchestrated this entire situation so that Peter would proclaim the gospel to Cornelius. For whatever reason, God seems to have committed himself to use us to bear that message, and it's through that message 
that his spirit will bring people to himself. Cornelius was saved not by his kind of disposition towards faith, but because he responded to the human preaching of the gospel that was brought to him. What about, what about the Athenians in Acts chapter 17? So Acts 17, Paul is, you guys can turn there. Um, Paul is in Athens. Acts chapter 17. And I'll pick up around verse 22. So he's wandering around. He finds the altar to the unknown God. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Okay, so these guys are super devout. They're making every effort to get to God in, by, by the means they have available to them. Is that enough? Does Paul just commend them for that and say, that's going to be good, guys. It's going to get you there. Just stick with it. Be super sincere. Right. Nope, he's not. For as I passed along, verse 23, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. So he's going to stop them in their tracks and say, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to tell you guys the good news. I'm going to tell you guys the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What you have unknown, I'm going to make known. Skipping down to verse 30, he says, the times, of the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by, the raising, by raising him from the dead. So, here he is saying, he is calling from this, from the point of Christ onward, he is calling all people everywhere to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, to trust in Jesus Christ as their only hope for salvation. Paul doesn't say that they're okay just for worshiping the unknown God. He preaches Christ and calls them to repentance. All right? We also, someone might say, well, what about all those Old Testament saints? Weren't those guys saved without knowing Christ specifically? And just a couple things. One, I think Hebrews 11 is super helpful on this, understanding that they are, uh, that they are, um, that they are saved by faith, the faith that's given them. I think Bible, the Bible seems to hint in the New Testament that they may have had more faith and more clarity than we might even suspect. So John 8 refers to, G, uh, to Abraham rejoicing at the thought of seeing Christ's day coming. Um, Moses chooses to suffer disgrace for the sake of Christ, uh, for the sake of the Messiah. Uh, I, you know, Simeon, uh, I think, is a great example. We looked at this last week. We looked at New Testament verses that talk about um, God's heart for the nations. And uh, in Luke 2, he understands that salvation is going to come through Jesus for the Jew and the Gentile alike. I also think we're, we're also seeing the refinement of the, of the progression of, of Scripture. 
and of, of the proclamation of the gospel. And so things have markedly changed uh, on this side of Christ. So whether that's Ephesians 3, 6 or um, yeah, Romans 16, there are lots of places that, that mark this, this change in eras in how the gospel is proclaimed. So I don't think we want to look at the Old Testament analogy of faith and say, well, we'll just apply that, hopefully, to people on the other side of the world uh, rather than follow the explicit commands of Christ to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to those people on the other side of the world. So we started the class by asking, how does the exclusive claim of Christ affect how we do missions? And we asked, what would happen to missions if Christ isn't the only way to Christ? So let me ask it in a way. What happens to missions? How is missions affected when we know that Christ is the only way to God? Utmost importance, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Have to preach the gospel. Have to proclaim the gospel. Yeah. What else? Praise God. Yeah. In his grace, he He has revealed this to us. Yep. And then that should propel us also to want to be a part of others praising God and be able to give thanksgiving. Thanksgiving abounds, St. Corinthians 5, um, as more and more people hear the testimony of grace. high privilege yeah totally yeah that's a good word that's a good word yeah yep Lots of other implications, and we'll keep unpacking them as we go. But like another one I would add to the list is, I think this heightens our understanding of like who we ch- who are we seeking to reach, who are we taking the gospel to, uh, and particularly not just that each individual seeing them as unreached because they don't trust in Christ, but shifting to no no there are whole people groups, there are whole tribes, tongues, and languages where they have zero access to the gospel. 
And yes, there might be Christians in their country. There might be Christians who speak the majority language that surrounds them. But no one that we know of yet has heard the gospel and responded to it in that people group and will will be with us around the throne of Christ. And so we're going to, and those places are super hard, but we're going to take the gospel to those places. Even leaving behind the 99, where we might see like, oh, well, there's a lot of fruitfulness here, and going after the one who said that, that, but those people, to our knowledge and to our faithfulness, are not yet on the list of those who will gather with us around the throne. And so we need to bring this exclusive, um, this exclusive truth to them because currently no one there knows. Hey, uh, we want to close our time by, by taking some time to pray and, uh, and so I want to, uh, and we've, we've done we want to expose you to uh, the lives of people who have faithfully done this and so uh, just one for you to consider, look up uh, later, uh, even Wikipedia has a good article about James Frazier uh, he was a missionary um from 1910 to 1938 when he died on the field uh, to the Lisu people of China. And um, just one, uh, I, I give a quote there um, that I thought was super helpful just on, uh, he gives this image of like, what is the missionary task? It's you wander around with a match and you hope that you can catch the whole valley on fire. And lots of times it's just a, it's a rainforest and nothing catches. But when the Holy Spirit has done its work, and dried everything out and prepared everything, you walk in and you touch with your little match and the whole valley just goes ablaze. And that was true with uh, Fraser as he sought to reach the Lisu people um, that for the first six years he didn't see a conversion, but he just faithfully learned the language, faithfully uh, uh, sought to understand the people, faithfully went in to try to have access to them every way that he could and share the gospel with them. And then in year six, he starts to see the valley catch on fire because God's doing the work. And not because James Frazier is leading tons and tons of people to Christ, but because the Lisu people are leading Lisu people to Christ. Uh, and the, um, the legacy is pretty incredible. Um, I, I looked up on, um, on the Joshua Project, the current stats for the Lisu people. Uh, there are one point, I'm trying to look them up. There are 1.3 million Lisu uh, in the world, and um, 45% of them uh, are evangelical Christians, w- meaning that that they 45% of them would know the exclusive nature of Jesus Christ that we just talked about, and have trusted in Jesus Christ as their only Lord and Savior. It's just phenomenal, um, and they're in they're in hard places: uh, Myanmar, uh, China, uh, South China, and Thailand. Um, and, uh, yeah, um, in Thailand, there are 42,000 of them, uh, and only 34% of them profess Jesus Christ as their only Lord Savior. Like, that just is, this is a phenomenal stat and work of God among these two people. So, uh, much for us to praise. And then I want us to take a minute and, um, and pray for Ukraine. Um, it's obviously in the headlines, and I want us to think about it not in the way maybe you've been thinking about it a lot with, um, with the conflict there, but to think about how does how do we pray missionary prayers for the people of Ukraine? And so, just a quick little uh, exercise: when you hear this, um, when you hear this headline, 
how might it prompt you to pray missionary prayers for the people of Ukraine? So this headline says, uh, U.S. condemns new Russian media law. So Russia has banned um, uh, anything uh, that they consider fake news that contradicts their version of the truth of what's really happening there. So read that headline, and then how might it prompt you to pray a missionary prayer for the people of Ukraine or for Russia? Sure. Yeah. Can you just, we, we're short on time, Jack. Can you just tell us what's happening? Next? the headline um, Russia's Putin says Ukraine advance going to plan what would be a, a gospel truth you might think of that you would a missionary prayer that you would pray in light of seeing that headline amen yeah yeah so the nation's rage right people's plot in vain Right? It's, it's vanity, all the plans of humanity, but God's plan is true. And so we pray for God's kingdom come, God's will be done. Right? We pray for people in Ukraine to not trust in human plans, but to trust in God's sovereign plan. Right? This headline, uh, a quote from a Ukrainian family, I believe in our defenders more than in God. Why this Ukrainian family plans to stay in place. Hear that, that quote, see that headline? How might it prompt you to pray missionary prayers? would be a good prayer like that they would find that trusting the ukrainian forces won't be ultimate and i hope that they don't learn that the hard way but i would be okay with them learning that the hard way if it meant they learned the real truth that they should trust in god right so there's even like with a headline like that that gives you a specific family with a specific picture of them to pray for their salvation in the midst of the ukrainian conflict so I wanted to think about that exercise uh, because there are there are lots of Bible prayers we can pray. I mean, um, you know, Acts 4, where they just say, God, you know the threats that are against us. You know um, and give us boldness. So praying for Ukrainian Christians that the, you know the threats. God has always known the threats that are against them. And pray for boldness that they proclaim the gospel. Michael, would you lead us in a time of praying 
for the green and then we'll head to the main service here. Just 